News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as of this morning, the Pacific border crossing is open and clear after a weekend of protests there. It was busy for law enforcement right across the weekend trying to deal with protesters who have been blockading borders. Some areas like the one in B.C. and at Windsor have been cleared, others not so much. So let's get an update now from Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simi. And you're right. Uh, it looks like border crossings. Um, all the all the reports from the Canada Border Services Agency say no delay for uh, commercial travel. And that includes the Pacific Highway one. There are two border crossings, though, still closed to commercial traffic, and that's the one in Coots, Alberta, and the one in Emerson, uh, Emerson, Manitoba. So two crossings still closed, but um, right now the CBSA is reporting no delay uh, at every other border crossing across the country. That includes the Ambassador Bridge and. You know, that's the one where, uh, you know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of goods go back and forth uh, in a week. Okay, and so let's talk about what's going on in Ottawa this morning as well. What is the situation there? Well, I'm standing 14 floors above Parliament Hill in our parliamentary bureau. I came in this morning. Notice that the police perimeter um, had expanded by a couple of blocks. So to get to my office here, I have to present my Parliament Hill uh, press gallery pass have to go through a couple of checkpoints. There's, there's an additional checkpoint uh, today relative to last week. Um, there are fewer vehicles. I'm looking right down now at what I can see. Our, our office overlooks the National War Memorial, and uh, there are definitely fewer vehicles, but there's still lots of vehicles uh, around, and uh, not a lot of people because it is a very chilly morning here in Ottawa, minus 24 uh, when I arrived this morning, and there's a very brisk wind coming up off the Ottawa River. And uh, anybody who's traveled Ottawa and you, you in the wintertime and you've stood on Parliament Hill with that wind, I've done it lots of times. It's, it's mighty cold. So right now in Ottawa, we have the, the protest is, con- is continuing. Um, you know, there's no border here, obviously. Um, I mean, there's a border with Quebec, which is actually occasionally blocked. That's about it. Um, so it's a different kind of protest and a different kind of response, I suppose, that um, authorities are thinking about compared to some of the uh, border crossings that we've seen. Yeah, let's talk about what happened with Ottawa residents over the weekend, because clearly they are frustrated, some of them showing up to counter-protest, uh, and also there seems to be a lot of concerns about Ottawa police at this point. Yeah, there's been some concern about police right from the get-go, that the decisions that the Ottawa police services have made um, have been clearly ineffectual. Um, residents have been calling for much more uh, aggressive enforcement action. I mean, when, when I say that, they, they literally want the police to be uh, arresting people and uh, towing vehicles, and that hasn't happened yet. And then there was this, so there was this counter-protest, essentially, on Sunday, uh, led by some local politicians, municipal and provincial, as well as other community leaders. Um, more than a few thousand people were uh, confronting some of the protesters, so the counter-protesters are the people who want this whole thing to end and everybody to go home, and they were uh, surrounding some pickup trucks in some cases yesterday and uh, demanding that uh, all the decals and paraphernalia be taken off these pickup trucks before they'd allowed them to leave. They turned them away. A lot of the protesters were surprised to see that so many people did not like what they were doing. I think the protesters sort of live in their own bubble. Uh, They feed themselves social media information. They think they're all heroes and that everybody in Ottawa loves what they're doing. And the counter-protest, the point of that yesterday was, no, no, people 
want uh, people to leave. The, the Rideau Center Mall, which is just off the downtown, right near the protest, it's the sixth largest mall in the country. And they announced yesterday they're, they're remaining closed indefinitely. Um, that's 180 retailers, 1,500 employees. Um, again, sixth largest mall in the country going to remain closed indefinitely. And then late yesterday, there was news that the mayor, Jim Watson, had struck a deal with one of the protest organizers, a woman named Tamara Litch, who I think is from uh, the BC, uh, from the Lower Mainland. Um, and Litch is one of the organizers, and apparently this deal um, would have the, the, the protest convoy vehicles move out of some residential neighborhoods. We'll see if that happens. It won't be easy. Um, I think if they're on Parliament Hill, they will still be able to be heard by some residential neighborhoods. But that may be some of the first movement we've seen in terms of um, rearranging the way that the convoy's footprint is here in Ottawa. Right. Okay. And two more things here, David. One, Public Safety Minister Bill Blair having some interesting things to say about Ottawa police on the weekend. And also, what about the role of, it seems like, some uniformed military personnel and what's going on? Yeah, so this is something that's got the attention of uh, the senior ranks of the military, people like Bill Blair, who's our emergency preparedness minister. Uh, first of all, uh, there is a feeling among some police uh, observers, experts, and Bill Blair would be one. He used to be the chief of the police department in Toronto. He, he knows about policing. That, again, they, they're not sure that the Ottawa Police Services is being uh, is, is making all the right decisions. And so over the weekend, a new sort of joint integrated management team, you know, that sort of police speak, um, involving Ottawa Police, RCMP, and the OPP has been formed, and they will be making some decisions about things. Now, one of the things we saw over the weekend was some videos, social media posts, from police officers uh, in uniform, um, essentially saying, I'm with the protesters, and, you know, uh, I'm against the government. And that's a bit dangerous. There are a lot of police officers in Parliament who did the right thing. They took the uniform off, they put the gun down, they put the badge down, and they put their name on a ballot. Um, it's a bit dangerous thing when you have people we expect to enforce the law, um, essentially s signaling that they don't plan to do that. In addition to the p police officers in uniform on video, um, we have seen some military officers also in uniform um, declaring their challenge to the elected government, to the civilian authority. Some investigations are underway, including an investigation of two um, Joint Task Force 2, JTF2. These are our special forces people. Um, two individuals are under investigation, um, and we're told, our colleague Mercedes Stevenson has some great sources in the military, uh, these two individuals refused to get vaccinated and were on their way out. Uh, they, were, they were in the process of being discharged when they started to declare their support uh, for the protesters. And again, uh, this is not something that uh, the Canadian military leadership wants to see, is uh, you've got to stay loyal to the civilian authority and, and you've got to maintain uh, discipline, which means you don't comment on things like this. All right, more to come on that. David, thank you. Okay, great, thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some developing news this morning. There is word that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is expected to announce today that he will invoke emergency powers to support provinces in ending the blockades and the public protests and disorder that we have been seeing over the past couple of weeks. That is a global news telling sources, sources telling global news that uh, over the last few hours. So there is more to come on that. We expect to hear more about it shortly and we'll let you know what all of that means, actually. Uh, meanwhile, there's a lot of criticism of what the police have been doing, and that's one of the reasons why we are, you know, where we are. 
Public Safety Minister Bill Blair joined the West Block over the weekend, told host Mercedes Stevenson that he is once again urging police to restore order. And so we now have a situation where it's clearly a very significant and serious public order event, and we all need the police to do their job. And, and to that end, we've been working to make sure they have the resources and the tools that they need to do it. But ultimately, it comes down to the police need to restore order to enforce the law and, 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 and to open up those points of entry and to restore public safety in, in the city of Ottawa. That's very telling. We need police to do their job. That is Federal Minister Bill Blair, himself a former police chief. I mean, that's very frustrating for especially Ottawa residents. Imagine if they had parked illegally somewhere. They get a ticket, they get towed. Why aren't the most basic of bylaws being enforced? Why is there this impression that basic policing isn't happening? So let's talk more about all of this. Joining us now is Dr. Rob Gordon, Professor of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Thanks for being with us this morning. Happy to be with. What do you think about this emergency powers decision that is apparently coming this morning? Well, there's a sweet irony to it in a way because this is, you know, Trudeau too. Um, it, it, you, you will recall the FLQ crisis um, and what happened there. And of course, um, we're now looking at uh, Trudeau uh, again coming back, a Trudeau coming back and talking about the COVID crisis and using emergency powers legislation to deal with that so I mean, it, it, if you have any sense of history in this area it's uh, it, it, it's it's wonderful to, <laughs> wonderful to see it um I, i'm not quite sure we have to see what the emergency powers uh, might likely be but clearly a lot is going to rest on the shoulders of the of the police and i mean he's made it clear that the military are not uh, on the table um but uh, ultimately, that's a, a force that has to be uh, considered at some point, um, uh, just because of the sheer logistics of uh, going after uh, these truckers. I mean, they're all fairly obvious, so um, they're clearly linked together uh, through social media sites, and they clearly have um, some internal knowledge of the way in which police um, uh, in this right. context. So Rob, that, 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 Rob, let me let me ask you a question here. Also, you seem to be we seem to be losing Sorry. you. So, yeah, we seem to be losing you there for a second. Um, I, I want to ask you, like, why is there this impression, though, that police are not doing their job, that the that the laws are not being enforced? Well, I think people are frustrated by uh, what they're seeing. Um, I mean, it, in many ways, it's you know, it borders on on anarchy, uh, where you see uh, truckers uh, taking over uh, intersections, uh, blocking roads, blocking borders, and so on, um, and the police standing uh, with, seemingly with their hands in their pockets, allowing them to do that. Uh, that that is not, in fact, what's happening. I'm sure. I mean, standoffs um, are for the police. Standoffs in these situations can be quite uh, important because you don't want this to spill out into over violence, and the, the potential for that is is extraordinary. Uh, I think it's um, you know a Canadian measure in a way that we've not resorted to that. That the demonstrators, the protesters. Uh, have not uh, turned on the police at this point, um, and that the counter-protesters have not 
shown any you know extreme violence i mean yes there's been some incidents but the the police role here really is to try to keep the peace at the same time uh, breaking up these demonstrations but I they're mean, not but on. they're not breaking it up until it seems to be really far gone like why is it getting to that point before it seems like the police are walking in to do something uh, okay well, well the, the logistics of managing demonstrations of this size um and it, it, it's not to be underestimated. I mean, you, you, you need a large number of police officers to uh, to be able to uh, respond, um, because if you respond, you've got to respond effectively. You cannot uh, you cannot be weak in your response. And so far, I think they've been amassing um, uh, the the personnel they need to do that. Um, you, you've also got problems with uh, w- with how you process. Um, these individuals um, it's true of any mass demonstration I mean there, there are uh, formula that the police services follow uh, to be able to do that effectively um, the minute there's an arrest for example uh, that police officer is out of the line for the time being uh, so the peacekeeping function uh, is reduced quite significantly um, it, the crowd can, you know, push through more easily if they're down one police officer. Uh, and every time an arrest is made, that person who's arrested has to be processed. Now there are there are mechanisms, there are strategies um, that are tried and true for processing uh, offenders, for processing people who've been arrested. Um, and those probably are well, the, the police are well aware of how to do that. So it, it's, um, uh, but it's still immensely difficult to do that. It can't underestimate logistics. And then you've got all these motor vehicles that have to be removed. Um, and who's going to do that? Right. Um, so this is like it, the it, psychology it, of policing is what you're saying. So these are police tactics, but do they, are they working here? Are they, be, are they effective? Well, we've not had over uh, outbursts of extreme violence. Uh, if this were south of the border, we'd have seen firearms by now. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's the case. And let's hope it, it's not. But um, the, I, I don't think that. You know, I'm not. I have to be careful what you say here. But I don't think that um, the uh, the, the police. I think the police are concerned about that. If they overstep the mark. Um, there's going to be a violent reaction, which they will not be able to control. Right. So then, Rob, thinking back to, to how all of these got set up, right? There's been also criticism of how p- the protests were just allowed to kind of walk in and set up and nobody seemed to do anything. Will this change, do you think, how we approach like protests and stuff like this in the future? No, I think it's going to result in some significant strategic changes. I mean, there's a lot to be learned from this. Um not the least of which is how you deploy uh, at an early stage um, to allow the blockades to actually be created in the first instance. The moment the first truck rolled in was probably uh, a mistake, but then um, hindsight's twenty twenty, uh, And if it looked like it was a bunch of trackers who were upset by one particular issue, which was the, the vaccine mandate, um, that might have been something that could have been dealt with much more easily, but uh, something or somebody has inflamed um, this particular group. Um, 
I actually was very interested to see how this was being reported south of the border um, because, um, you know, people whispered the word insurrection and, and thrown the Trump, Trump word around. And it, it's, um, it, it is interesting to see how some news outlets there are covering it mm-hmm. um, and, and how their uh, Fox in particular <laughs> is having a ball. Um, and you could see, uh, almost see a Trump rubbing his hands and thinking, 2024, if I can just get the same thing going. Who knew Canada um, could be so interesting to so many uh, Americans? Listen, Rob, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, Simi, my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about Black History Month. It is this month, and there's a lot of discussion about what is taught in our schools about our history, not just the history that we've all heard of, but the other communities and other people who have contributed to our province's history. Well, for more on that, our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, you know I've got a a girl in kindergarten, and we're two weeks deep into Black History Month, so I've been curious about what she's been learning, and uh, zero mention of Black History Month, uh, none. I've gotten emails about Valentine's Day and Pajama Day, nothing about Black History in our province or, or celebrating Black excellence like Olympian Harry Jerome, a significant historical figure in our own neighborhood. Um, so that made me delve a little bit deeper and see how much BC school curriculum has changed around Black History. And gosh, the dial has not really moved much since I was in elementary school. And kids today, they might read a little bit about the transatlantic slave trade or maybe the Underground Railroad uh, when they're in older grades, but that's it. So a group of stakeholders um, who are of African descent here in Metro Vancouver, they're hoping to change all of that. They want to enrich that curriculum, fill in the gaps. And I talked to Markiel Simpson. He's a Black anti-racism advocate. And along with some educators and some parents from BC's Black community, they're meeting today, this morning actually, with the education minister to discuss a path forward in including Black history in the curriculum. It's been a part of my life growing up is wondering where um, Black Canadians fit into the picture because there has to be more to it. Um, But I've been most astounded to learn uh, in BC just about how crucial Black settlement was in um, annexing the U.S. and ensuring that BC uh, joins Confederation. Uh, The first governor in BC was James Douglas, who's of African descent, and one of the first counselors in the city of Victoria was Mifflin Gibbs, um, who is of African-American descent. And so um, there's really a lot of impact uh, in the first days of early BC, uh, and we could very well not be here without them. And I believe that that should be included for sure. What do you think most people's sense is of Black history in Canada after they go through the curriculum? That there is no history. I think most people... That's why we still get the questions, uh, where are you from? Where are you really from, right? They can't even fathom that um, people of African descent have been in Canada as early as the 17th century. And so I think that overall, people don't think that Black Canadians have contributed to the formation of the country and maybe just see us as others. That's actually really interesting, especially the point about James Douglas. Another, There are already people in our history. We just don't know about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this group is going to present to the education minister, Jennifer Whiteside, with uh, a memorandum of understanding that's going to outline an intention of how to move forward, how to work together. There is some willingness there, a great deal of willingness. Uh, the minister has already said she's very interested and curious about how they can work together. So the hope there is this is also going to lead to a timeline, though, for the curriculum's implementation that just doesn't end up uh, just being chatter. And it's possible that a step like this... I think could be taken for granted, but it's necessary. You got to get it in writing. What does this group really want? They want a seat at the decision-making table. Well, we hope to gain a, a better country and a better province, one where people are fully informed about the ways in which people from diverse backgrounds or historically marginalized backgrounds have contributed to the country. And that um, learning those points and having teachers educated in anti-racism actively finding ways to dismantle those systems and to support people to not face those kinds of harms. At the end of the day, we're hoping that people are more informed and that there's less racism in general. Currently, um, my understanding is that they're not being taught anti-racism at all. Um, And Black history isn't being taught either, because I would contest that references to the transatlantic slave trade and the Underground Railroad are more so uh, white history and the ways that we were impacted by colonialism uh, than the history that people want to learn. Um, So I'd say that there's a long way to go. um, And hopefully, coming out of this meeting, we can have firm commitments and we can have a path forward with a roadmap into a path to inclusion. Uh, That sounds like there's a lot of pressure, Raji, on these meetings. Yeah, there is. This is a really important meeting that's happening today. Uh, He said it there. Markeel Simpson was talking about how the curriculum is weak when it comes to looking at how groups, how different groups have contributed to the history of BC, of Canada, especially the Black community. So, Simi, I just took part as a parent, uh, nothing to do with uh, being in the media, just as a parent in the elementary school system um, in a series of focus groups that the school district has been conducting through a third party around uh, anti-racism. And it was really fascinating to hear what people know, or I should say don't know, about how much group different groups have contributed to the history of this province. And the ministry needs, uh, they need they need these Black stakeholders, people from African descent at the decision-making table if they really want to make a difference when it comes to anti-racism and changing the curriculum. They have to also look at providing teachers with leaning, learning resources. Because my understanding is that the teachers don't have the tools and also some of them lack the motivation because they haven't got the tools and the training uh, with how to talk to kids about anti-racism. So much more work needs to be done there. But I have to say that the willingness seems to be apparent. That's really neat to see. Right. So is it a matter, do you think, of having the tools? Or like if it's not in the curriculum, how can the teachers make sure they're teaching it appropriately? They can't. They just simply can't. So if it's not in the curriculum, then kids aren't learning it. And just learning about cultural days is not enough. People tell me, oh, my kids have anti-racism stuff at school. They're learning about Chinese New Year. That's not learning about anti-racism. That's learning about Chinese New Year. You have to go a step further and talk about these things that I think for some people are really uncomfortable. Anti-racism talk is really uncomfortable for people. So uh, I think that teachers need to be given 
the uh, go-ahead from the ministry on here is the pedagogy, here's the training, here are the tools, and then allow them to shine with it. All right, should be an interesting one. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you remember how revolutionary CDs were? I mean, those of us who were around at that time, we raced to build our collections and dump vinyl. And since then, you may have dumped your CDs and switched to streaming. And who knows, you may have gone back to vinyl too. But there are those who are perhaps having a change of heart about that. Music journalist Alan Cross is one of them, sounds like. He's written about this and joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. What was the first CD that you ever bought? Do you remember? Uh, I was... Oh, hang on. I was given a demonstration CD with a bunch of Glenn Miller um Glenn Miller big band songs on it. And the first one I bought with my own money, it might have been Brothers in Arms from uh, Dire Straits. Uh, Dire Straits. Yeah, nice. Nice was, choice. That was at the time that that was a song, that was a CD, CD that was used for for demonstrating the high fidelity um, capabilities of the disc. So you were clearly an early adopter because I remember my first one being Bananarama's Greatest Hits, and I probably still have that somewhere. It was so great. I don't think I've thrown out any of mine. Uh, I have what I call my CD vault, which is a giant room in the basement. And there's probably ten thousand discs in it, and I don't ever go in there anymore. And uh, a little while ago, I was starting to ask myself, why? What, what was the point? Where, where, where was the, the point in my life that I fell out of love with CDs after being such a collector for so long? What was it? And I couldn't remember. Maybe it was when I got my first iPod and I started ripping stuff to the iPod. And wow, this made music so incredibly portable and incredibly convenient. And that what I would end up doing is buying CDs, ripping them to MP3s or whatever format, and listening to them on my iPod, then later my iPhone. And once I ripped the CD, I would just put it in the CD vault and, and not think of them anymore. Which, um, and then streaming came along. And then, of course, you know, that had, you didn't have to rip anything, anything anymore. You just, you know, fired up Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it was, and, and you had all the music you wanted. Okay, so you're writing about this now, and why is it? Why are you rediscovering your CDs? Well, largely because the price of vinyl, and I went very heavy into the vinyl revival, um, is because the price of vinyl has skyrocketed. If you've been into a record store and looked at new vinyl recently, you can you see discs or see uh, records selling for $45, 50 60 even over $70. And there's, and there's nothing special about these CDs. It's just a supply and demand situation. There were a number of problems in the supply chain with um, making records over the last couple of years, one of which was a shortage of polyvinyl chloride, which was caused in part by an increasing number, an increasing demand of this plastic to be used to make takeout containers so we could eat during the pandemic. So with, with records becoming so expensive, I thought, well, what other physical music formats are there? Well, there's the CD and the CD is still selling millions and millions of units every single year. And then I realized that, you know, there was no real reason to start hating them or ignoring them because first of all, they worked great. They sounded good there. I had CD players all over the place. I, in fact, I got a new car back in, in July. And, and when I was being introduced to the features of the car, a guy pointed to a CD player and I was like, 
what? In well, a, in a, in a, in a 2021? That's where, I, that's where I still listen to my CDs is in the yeah. car, actually. So do you think it was the convenience? Like you talked about the switching to the streaming and it's so convenient and maybe CDs just aren't as convenient. Well, they're not, especially if you're on the go. Anybody who ever had a portable CD player knows how terrible they were at, even with their anti-skip technology. They were big and they were bulky and uh, you could only carry a couple of discs with you at a time. Meanwhile, with your phone, what you've got with you anyway, has access to 95 million songs via the streaming services. So uh, convenience easily eclipsed possession. But again, there is something to be said for possession because this is a curated personal collection of music that you can go back and listen to as many times as you want for no additional charge. And it's really kind of cool. And this is what happened with vinyl. You saw how many linear feet of vinyl records you had on your wall or or wherever you were storing them. And that gave you a sense of, accomplishment like i own this music this music is part of me it is uh where i go to feel better about things and we did that with the compact disc for the longest time and then we stopped for some reason and maybe it's time to reevaluate that are you does that mean that you're going back into that room now and going to start digging through your cds i have no idea what i've got in there so yes i probably will um there are, I'm sure, some some hidden gems in there that I that I've completely forgotten about. I have a stereo with a CD player, so it would be no problem just to. A lot of people you know, don't anymore, though, Alan. That's well, the thing. no, I I know people have, have you know just like they don't have cassette players anymore or a track players anymore. But chances are there's there's one around the house because the compact disc next to the microwave oven was the biggest selling consumer electronics item in history. I mean, you might even put the, uh, the DVD player in there, but it was, it was such a hit and there are billions and billions and billions of CDs in circulation right now. So they're never, ever going to go away. They, they, they won't ever um, disintegrate because they're made of plastic and aluminum. So are they due yeah, for a revival? Maybe. Do you think? Well, some people are talking about it. I don't know if revival is, is the right word because that, implies some kind of mass consumer movement. I'm just saying that if you've got a CD collection at home, you might want to give it some love again and rediscover why it is that you spent 10, 15, 20, 25, $30 on each of these discs. I remember that vividly. Alan, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Alan Cross, music journalist, writing about your CD collection. Is it time to rediscover it? He's right. We spent a lot of money investing in those CDs, and you probably still have them somewhere. When was the last time you even listened to one of your CDs? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Prime Minister Trudeau expected to invoke the Emergencies Act today to help deal with the convoy protest situation. One of the reasons for that may be the polling that's being done about how Canadians are feeling with this whole situation. Joining us now is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute, their latest poll out this morning. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. So it sounds like people's attitudes have kind of changed a little bit in the last two weeks. Sure, and and that's uh, not surprising in that we have seen significant and big swings from time to time in public opinion on issues, uh, depending on what's happening. So when you think back to two or three weeks ago, 
um, before the convoy members had had uh, occupied Ottawa, had blockaded the Ambassador Bridge, I think there was a line of thought uh, among many Canadians, uh, number one, that they were ready to have a conversation about lifting restrictions, because that conversation was one that was being led by public health officials and uh, and by, you know, medical experts that they were listening to, um, and, uh, and that people had a right to protest. You know, they're going to go to Ottawa, they're going to protest. People have that fundamental right in this country. Two weeks later, what you're seeing is Canadians, uh, the majority of whom have pretty much lost patience with the protesters. Now, there's still a significant segment, about 25 to 30 percent, who say they're absolutely all in with the convoy members. They support them. They support what they're asking for. They support their tactics. But uh, for about 70 to 75 percent of Canadians, there, there, there is a different view on this, right. and their view is it's time to go home. Okay, and so what do they want to see happen? Uh, well, there is, I think, again, uh, a sense of frustration or, or just, you know, apoplexy in some cases. So what they want is uh, for negotiations, really, and, and continued talking to the protesters to come to an end. And what they're looking for uh, now is for uh, enforcement on part of Ottawa police in Ottawa and on part of the OPP and other police forces. Either start enforcing the bylaws, uh, start writing up tickets, start making arrests. And in, in many cases, if you're arresting, start charging people. Uh, people in this country have largely run out of patience on this one. It certainly sounds like it. All right, Chachi, thank you very much for that. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Shachi Carl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. You'll be hearing a lot about the polling that they did. It just came out this morning. Lots about it in the news today, especially that we're hearing Prime Minister Trudeau going to invoke the Emergencies Act. How that will give more powers, what the premiers will do with it, we will wait to see. But that's a developing story you'll be hearing about. Keep it tuned in right here for the very latest.